My name's Jerome, I'm the Associate Minister here at St Mark's and we're continuing our series on To the Promised Land. Now, I thought I'd continue on from Holly's imaginings and I imagine that day one was very exciting, seeing the manor just from nowhere. Day two was also very exciting. But I'm imagining as the days go on and as the weeks go on, manor's not looking that good. How do you like your bread? Last week I asked, how do you like your water? Sparkling? Tap water? Room temperature? Chilled? I like mine, soda with a bit of lime, a little bit of bitters in there. How do you like your bread? Have you been to the supermarket recently? There's a lot of options. A, a lot of options. Um, for someone like me, I can only have gluten-free bread. There's even still options. But let me tell you, last week... I went to the supermarket and my bread, the bread that I like to have, was not there. I looked on the shelf and in the section where my bread is supposed to be, it was empty. I started walking off to get some other items and I must confess that in my heart there were a lot of grumblings and complainings going on about my lack of bread in the store. But something prompted me to go back. So I went back. I went back and um, yes, um, it was still empty, but I was just glancing around and there was a loaf of my bread, just one loaf in the wrong spot. And it was like somehow, I mean, it was, it's much like the Israelites. Basically, if you grumble and complain, eventually you will get what you want. And that's the moral of our story today. So let's pray. No, I'm joking. That's not the moral of the story at all. Um, and if you were listening last week, I said that this story, well, last week's story, this week's story, and next week's story, they all go together. They're three stories, one about water, one about uh, manna or bread from heaven and quail, and the other one, again, about water. These three stories go together. And what they do have in common is the response of God's people to their situation. When there's a lack of water, when there's a lack of food, they complain and they grumble. And I said last week that the temptation would be, the temptation would be to make that the focus. That the story is all about how to learn how not to grumble and complain. But as last week, I say to you again this week, this story is about God. Remember, he's brought them out of Egypt. This is the beginning stages of their relationship with God. They probably had some understanding of God through the stories of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and what God had done in bringing about a mighty nation. But they wouldn't have known a lot. And before they get to the promised land, God wants to Teach them about who he is. Let them know who he is. And so in today's story, we're looking at Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 12, entitled Bread from Heaven. In this story, I'm telling you that this is a story about God. It's about what God does because of who he is and how that relates to us. It's a story about what God does because of who he is and how that relates to us. 
And it's clear from our story that they don't know God. If you'd read chapter 15, only the um, chapter before, you might have thought they knew God. They sang a song about him. They declared who he was. They were quite confident about who he was. They said that with his mighty arm, he rescued them. With his mighty arm, he conquered their enemies. But in verse 3 today, it says that the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve. So, In one instance, they're talking about God's mighty arm. That's a symbol of God's power being for them. Now they're almost saying that God's arm is against them. They don't know their God, but God wants them to know them. He wants us to know him. You see, entering the promised land without him means they'll only enter it and spoil it. And that's true of us too. As we go on, as we move forward, God wants us to know him and to go with him. And so what does God do to make himself known? Because we can know him through what he does and what he does flows from who he is. But what does he do? Well, very simply and basically, it tells us in verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So very clearly it says to us that that God fed them. He fed them. But he fed them not because of their grumbling but despite it. And this is really important to note. That what God does, he does not because they complained and grumbled, but he did what he did because of who he is. He did it despite their grumbling. And yes, he fed them with bread from heaven. But he did more. If you look carefully again, if, you can, if that slides back up, the second part of that verse reads, In this way I will test them, and see whether they will follow my instructions. God not only fed them with bread from heaven, he was giving them an opportunity to be fed by his word, by his commands, by his instructions, by his truth. I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. God's word is good. God's word is full of grace. It flows out of who he is. When he does give them instructions, he tells them to collect this manna each day, only enough for each day. And then on the sixth day, gather twice as much because on the seventh day they're going to rest. And if we were to read on in the chapter, we would find they don't listen to his instructions. They try to gather more at first, and that's spoiled and there are maggots in it, which is pretty gross. But then on the sixth day, when they were told to gather twice as much, after people have done that, people head out on the seventh day when they were not supposed to. 
looking for it. It's clear that they don't trust what God is saying to them, that God's words are good and full of grace. His words are true, good and life-giving. And you see, this is a reversal of the garden. In the garden, in Genesis, right at the beginning, God's words were not believed, they were not trusted. This is an opportunity for them to hear God speaking to them. And of course, you remember Jesus' words, one does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he was quoting Deuteronomy when he spoke to Satan in the wilderness. Satan tempting him after 40 days of fasting, tempting Jesus to turn stone into bread. Jesus said, one does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God wants them to learn to trust him What does he do? He feeds them with bread and with his word. And when we come to the New Testament, God's ultimate word became incarnate, took on flesh. God's ultimate word is Jesus. And that word, that ultimate word is good and gracious. When we see Jesus, we see the fullness of God's goodness and grace. And so after Jesus performs a great miracle of feeding more than 5,000 people, the people chase after him. And then they say, show us a sign. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. Show us a sign. They missed the sign that Jesus just performed. He just fed over 5,000 people. But then Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, Sorry, that will come up on the screen. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is God's ultimate word. Jesus is God's ultimate bread from heaven. So what does God do? He feeds them with bread, but ultimately with his word. But why does he do this? Because of who he is. How do we know who he is? Because you see, in this story of the feeding, God's trying to reveal who he is. And there's something about who he is that's connected to this idea of knowing him seems to be connected to the glory of God. If we look carefully um, at verse uh, 6 and 7. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. So you will know who he is, you will know that it is him who brought you out of Egypt and you will see his glory. There seems to be some sort of connection. It's almost as though there's this idea that those who know God are witnesses to his glory. They will see his glory. What is God's glory? Well, God's glory is his beauty, his splendour, his perfections. 
God's glory isn't easy to describe. I could maybe try to describe a chair to you. I could say it's made out of wood. It, it looks like this. It feels like this. Its purpose is this. I could describe a chair. But how do you describe, say, beauty? I mean, you could use examples of what's beautiful, but how do you describe beauty? Well, that's what it's like trying to describe glory, God's glory. It's very difficult to describe. You could say it's like this and it's like that. There are so many ways in which God's glory is displayed in the scriptures through creation, through all sorts of things, through God's wondrous acts. And so God's going to display his glory to them. And, and I think there is another passage in Exodus which might help us understand God's glory. And it happens later on after Moses ends up on the mountain. The people build or create two golden calves, worship them and say these are the gods that <laughs> delivered us from Egypt. And then God, uh, Moses has to intercede for the people. And in this moment, Moses, unlike the people, is developing a greater and greater intimacy with God. You can see it taking place in, the, in, the, in, in chapter 34. There's this intimacy where God, where God says, I can't go with you guys. You go, but I won't go with you because I will wipe out the people. Then Moses says, but if you don't go, we don't want to go. We need you to go with us. There's this growing intimacy that Moses is displaying with God. And in that moment, Moses asks a very significant question, one that is, it, it's like it's the type of question you can only ask when that intimacy is growing. And he says, show me your glory. And so in um, chapter 33, verses 19 to 20, after Moses asks the question, this is what God says. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. So great is the glory of God that to look at him, behold him in all his fullness, would I don't know, would we explode? I'm not sure but it's just too glorious to look upon. But God actually does respond to Moses' request. And he says what he's going to do is that he's going to cause all his goodness to pass in front of him. And then he makes that expression that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so then it goes on to say in, um, in a few verses later, well, in the next chapter, um, it, it actually happens that the Lord passes before him. And so in verse um, 6 and 7 of chapter 34, it says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so in response to Moses' request to show me your glory, God talks about his goodness. He talks about his mercy and love, his grace, his compassion. God's glory is seen in his goodness and his grace. This is a central idea in Christianity, God's grace. 
God does not want to be misunderstood. Not on this account. He doesn't want to be misunderstood in relation to who he is, that he is good, that he is gracious and compassionate. And God's people pick up on this theme because this verse, this idea that God is slow to anger, abounding in love, this verse is picked up throughout the Old Testament. It occurs three times in the Psalms. Um, It occurs in Joel, Jonah, uh, Nehemiah, I think a couple of other places. And they all pick up on this verse that what God is saying here is that he is good, that he is loving. For those that would have read on in that verse or those that remember it, it does say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished and, and that he punishes to the third and fourth generation. Some people get stuck and go, oh, well, God does punish to the third and fourth generation. That doesn't sound good. Well, you need to understand it as a literary device. What I mean by that is that it's a quick compare and contrast. If you ask the question, is God good and loving? Well, he loves to the thousandth and he punishes to the third and fourth generation. So the point is, yes, God is loving. And that's actually how people understood it because that's the verse that they repeat. They they repeat the part that talks about God's great goodness and God's mercy and his slow to anger. That's what they repeat. They understood that it was a literary device. And so God does not want to be misunderstood on this account. But can I tell you something that um, Moses... I didn't do my calculations before I came here, but I'm going to guess that about 1,500 years later, his intimacy with God grows exponentially because we were just told that no one can see God's face, but Moses did some 1,500 years later. Does some of you know what I'm talking about? That God looked into the face... Sorry, that Moses looked into the face of God some 1,500 years later. For those that know the story of Jesus going up on the mountain with Peter, James and John, he's transfigured before them. And who appears with Jesus? Elijah and Moses. And when Moses looks into the face of Jesus, he's looking into the face of God. Here is the greatest display of God's glory in Jesus. The fullness of God's goodness and grace resides in Jesus. And sorry, I don't have this on the slide for you, but in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So God has shone in our hearts so that we might have an understanding of God's glory and we might see it displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. So if we understand what God is revealing to his people and in who he is, in his glory, he's showing them his goodness and his grace. So who is the Lord? He is glorious. That's who he is. He's glorious in his grace. But what does this have to do with us? How does what the Lord does and who he is relate to us? In verse 12, it reads... I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. This is the last verse of our passage today. I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know 
that I am the Lord your God. What is happening in this story? What is going on? Well, after they are going to be, after they witness this, after they've been fed with bread and ultimately with God's word, and after they have seen God's glory, what is it that God wants? That they will know that he is the Lord their God. God wants us to understand that we are his people and he is our God. He is making us one with him. He is reversing what took place in the garden. When we reached out for the fruit, when humanity reached out for the fruit that they were told not to touch, when they wanted to decide what was good and evil, it was a reversal. We were the creature. He was the creator. When we were reaching out, we were saying, we'll decide what's good and right. We will decide what is meaningful and purposeful. We will decide what our purpose is. That's a reversal of the order. And in so doing, everything falls into disorder. Everything becomes broken. There's oppressiveness. There's chaos. God is trying to restore that by helping us to see that his purposes for us are good. He is a good and gracious God if we would but trust him. And so God wants us to know him and to become and be made one with him again, to enjoy his presence again. And there is a difference between this union that God creates. This union is what God does, but it leads to communion. We often think of the word communion uh, as what we do in celebrating the Lord's Supper, which we will do just after this sermon. That's what we often use the word communion for. But early Christians used the word communion to talk about that intimate nature of one's relationship with God. To have communion with God is to be in an intimate relationship with God. And this is different to union. Tim Chester, in his book, Enjoying God, uh, describes it like this. So in this diagram that you'll see on your screen, union is a one-way affair. Union is what God does. God initiates it. God makes it happen. God makes us one with him. It's his action. He delivered them from Egypt. He saved them by his mighty hand. He makes them his people. He called Abraham. He made a mighty nation. He chose them. It's all God's work. That's what gives us union. And then that's ultimately done in Christ. That's what's done in Jesus. But communion is two-way. Communion is what it is to enjoy that relationship. It's like this, maybe. There are two children um, of a parent, and now they're both children. Nothing can change that. Nothing they do or don't do will change the fact that they are children of this parent or parents. Nothing can change that. But one of the children maybe appreciates the parent. One of the children notices the goodness and love of the parent. One of the children spends time over dinner chatting with the parent. One of the children goes out and enjoys walks and enjoys fellowship with the parent. 
One of them is having communion with the parent. The relationship is still there. They're both children, but one of them's enjoying communion. That's what God wants with his people. That's what God wants with the Israelites. That's what God wants for us. And we see that the Israelites don't understand, so they enter the promised land, but they are not trusting God's word. They don't know his goodness and his grace. And so we wait till Jesus comes along. Jesus is ultimate. Jesus is God's ultimate word, ultimate expression of God's glory, his grace and his goodness. God wants us to learn how to enjoy him. Because as we enjoy him, we start to become vessels through which transformation takes place across the world as we enter into communion with him. How does what God does and who he is relate to us? Well, what God does through his grace and his goodness, who God is in his grace and his goodness, well, this gives us union with God and it gives us an opportunity to enter into communion with God, enjoying God for who he is. I started a practice that at the end of my day, I would um, uh, look at my day and see where I missed God's goodness and grace. And when that happens, it's both a humbling experience where I'm like, ah, oh, I missed God. There he was. Oops, there was an opportunity. Oh, that person's words were encouragement. They were God's words of grace to me and goodness to me. But in that same moment of humility, there's a lightning in my heart. I have trouble sleeping. Sometimes it's because of my back. Sometimes it's because of my neck. Maybe it's the mattress. But sometimes there are things going in on, in, on in my head and in my heart. There are things going on that are weighing me down. And when I practice this idea of looking back and seeing where God's glory was displayed in my day, God's grace and his goodness... Something lightens in my heart. And I've even noticed now that sometimes I don't even wait till the end of the day. It's just a moment passes and I'm like, oops, I just missed that. It's almost as though those moments might be becoming less and less. And maybe we could all start to learn how to enjoy God's presence more and more and have communion in a continuous way. I pray that that might be so.